Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Home Field Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hi, everybody. This is Dan. After tonight's episode is finished, stay tuned for some bonus content as I reveal a winner of the simulated World Series between the all-time Yankee team and the all-time New York National League team. The result is a little unexpected, and Andrew was certainly surprised. So keep listening to hear the results and Andrew's reaction. Hello, old sports, and welcome to episode five of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, and we'd like to thank you for once again listening to Hello, Old Sports. Andrew and I have really enjoyed doing the podcast so far, and we hope that you've enjoyed listening to it as well. Before we get started, I just wanted to talk a little bit about what you can do to support the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, there are several things that you can do. First of all, you can subscribe. Whether it's iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, hit that subscribe button on your podcast app of choice and subscribe. And every Thursday, you will get a new episode of Hello Old Sports. The other thing that you can do is tell a friend. If you are a sports fan and you like sports and sports history and you have friends who may not be aware of what we're doing here, let them know. Let them know what we're doing. Let them know how to find us. And by spreading the word and by telling a friend and by growing our listenership, it makes it more, much more likely that this podcast will continue for days, weeks, months, and years to come. You can also rate us. Uh, we've gotten a few really good five-star ratings on iTunes so far. But if you listen and you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating and even leave a comment and tell us what you like about the podcast or things that you think we might be able to improve make suggestions for future topics or future episodes. Any thoughts you have about the podcast, please just feel free to let us know. You can also reach us by our email address, hellooldsports at gmail.com. That's just as it sounds, hellooldsports, all one word, at gmail.com. We've heard from a few folks already, and we really like hearing from our listeners. So drop us a line. Tell us what you think. Uh, again, make suggestions, anything of that nature. And then also, we are working on putting together a Facebook page for the podcast. We've not been able to find the time to do that yet. But every week when the new episodes are posted, if you want to share something on your Facebook, Twitter, social media account, anything you can really do to spread the word. I wanted to make one more announcement, which is that this episode will likely be airing in early November. and. By this point, uh, you've probably noticed, if you're a sports fan, that quite a few great athletes and heroes of sports yesteryear have died in 2020, and Andrew and I are planning our end-of-the-year in-memoriam special where we discuss the lives, careers, and legacies of many of those players. This will likely be a multi-episode arc that runs throughout the month of December. And 
If you have any suggestions for any athletes who you would specifically like to see included or hear us discuss in our year-end in memoriam episode, please feel free to drop us a line via helloworldsports at gmail.com. All right, on to today's episode. The first several episodes, with the exception of the very first episode where we did our Sports Mount Rushmores, the first several episodes of the podcast have been focused exclusively on baseball. We did our all-time teams for the Yankees and then the New York National League teams. Last week, we talked about some of the World Series moments for the two teams that were in this year's World Series. So we decided that this week and perhaps future weeks, uh, depending on how long this episode goes, we'll determine whether it's a one or a two-parter. We thought we'd talk about something totally different, and that is the sweet science, the sport of kings, the sport of boxing. And those of you listening and those of you who are sports fans might not realize, but there was a time when boxing was really, other than baseball, probably the biggest sport in this country. So we wanted to talk about some of the great moments in boxing history and more importantly, talk about why we think that maybe boxing is not nearly as important or relevant in American sports in the current era than it was throughout much of the 20th century. And this is a lot, will likely be a kickoff to a number of future episodes that we do next year where we focus on individual heavyweight champions in the history of American boxing. But for tonight, we want to give sort of a brief overview of boxing in America, specifically heavyweight boxing, and then also talk about why we think over the last couple of decades, the importance and relevance of boxing has really declined in the eye of the average American sports fan. So, Andrew, why don't you go ahead and tell the folks a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about tonight? Sure. So we're going to be talking primarily about the heavyweight title and specifically the decline of the heavyweight title. The heavyweight title and boxing are essentially synonymous in this country in terms of interest and sort of cultural relevance and things like that. Throughout the years, there were certainly exceptions to that, lighter weight fighters who garnered public attention, you know, Sugar Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard, um, other guys who weren't named Sugar or Ray. Um, but, you know, for the most part, when people opine on the popularity of boxing beyond, you know, diehard fans and historians and things like that, when you talk about sort of the public consciousness, which is what we're going to talk about tonight, they're talking about really the heavyweight division and specifically the heavyweight champion and defenses. Um, you know, and I, for years I've sort of heard various arguments and people point to various time frames and say like, oh, that's, you know, that's when it ended or that's why it happened. And like most things with sports and history in general, it's a much more complicated picture than just being able to sum it up in a couple of words or to pinpoint an exact date or if one thing had been differently, things wouldn't have changed. Because like a lot of sports history, some of it was unavoidable. You know, a lot of changing popularities and fads and, and things like that. Just the times change. Um, you know, you hear this is a, sort of a similar example, but you always hear people talk about the Major League Baseball All-Star game and how huge a deal it was earlier in 
20th century, really up through the 70s and 80s. And, you know, now it's really not much more than a novelty. But the some of those reasons were nothing that baseball did wrong. You know, a lot of people talk about how they didn't like tie in 2002 and interleague play ruined it. And, you know, whatever else you want to point to, too many guys on the team ruined it. But really the thing that mostly made it not as big a deal was that now you can see whoever you want to see at any time. You know, so there was nothing baseball was going to do that was going to make the All-Star game still mean as much as it did in 1963. For some of this with boxing, I'll try to underscore things were going to change in that most sports are not as popular as they once were nationally through no fault of their own just because there's more options and there's more variety of sports and entertainment options and access to technology and things like that. So I don't want to engage in like, straw man arguments, but we can definitely point to certain key things that really led to the total obscurity of the heavyweight title now in terms of cultural impact. I think that what certain people don't realize is that there was a time when the heavyweight champion was somebody who was just known, like Mm -hmm. the president, you know, You'd be hard pressed to go up to somebody and say, who's the president of the United States? And that person just say, well, I have no idea. The heavyweight champion of the world in boxing, that was just something that people knew who that was, even if they weren't sports fans. Especially when the heavyweight champion was the president, which happened, I think, three times. Well, um, I, I, I'm curious to think who would be the funny. Well, I guess Tyson would have to be the funny ex- example of who that could possibly be. I'm sorry. I was going to go the other way on that and think of the president being which president would be the funniest from you know the early part of the 20th century as a boxing champion. But you were going with which boxer would as the president. And that would certainly I think we just found ourselves two new episodes, my friend. Uh, well, my thought was FDR. Um, actually, I think a good episode might be in the future to talk about, uh, maybe around President's Day, we can talk about presidents and sports and the various, you know, ways they've been involved in sports in one way or another. But we digress a little bit. That's something maybe you all can look forward to in about four months. Uh, and the other thing I would just add before you kind of kick us off is there's this idea of the lineal heavyweight championship, which is basically who the heavyweight champion has been starting in the 1890s with John L. Sullivan and going right up through the present day, probably from Sullivan until about Mike Tyson. And obviously there's probably some people who would disagree with this boxing historians in one degree or another, but for about a hundred years, it was very clear in the public mind who the heavyweight champion was even if some of these governing body, governing bodies and federations had their belts on other people, for about a hundred years, the heavyweight champion went one meant one specific person, and that's even why they called it what they called it, which was the undisputed heavyweight championship. That hasn't been the case for the last thirty years. So, when we talk about the heavyweight champion, keep in mind that it's possible that at that, that time some of the governing bodies may have not actually recognized that person as the champion, but in the public mindset, they were very clearly known as the champion. So why don't you go ahead and uh, sort of get us started with this topic? 
Okay. So what we're going to do, the first part of this is by no means comprehensive, but we're going to hit four or five high points in the 20th century, starting at the early 20th century, of just not necessarily the height of boxing in terms of the boxing itself. I'm not going to opine on, you know, oh, who had, who was the best pure fighter, or when was the division strongest. This is more just sort of high points in terms of it mattering culturally. The heavyweight champion, who it was, and the surrounding, um, you know, the surrounding issues around that. So we're going to hit a few of those high points. And then as we get into the late 80s, we're going to sort of go in a more linear fashion and hit key events along the downward slope of the uh, of the mountain to where we are today and where we've been for several years at this point, which is just total obscurity and irrelevance to anyone who's not a diehard boxing fan. So we'll jump in. We'll start, like I said, early in the 20th century. And this is an instance where not all of the... It being as important culturally as it was doesn't necessarily mean that was all positive. It carries some ugly you know, ideologies with it. But so we'll start with, we'll start with Jack Johnson. Uh, Jack Johnson won the heavyweight championship in 1908. He was the first black world heavyweight champion. Before that, he held the, and I'm going to use the, the phrasing of the time. He held the colored heavyweight championship. Like everywhere else in society, the boxing color lines were pretty strictly drawn and they stayed strictly drawn even after Johnson won the title he would not defend the title and was not permitted to defend the title against another black fighter so it was basically whenever he lost it it was going to be a white fighter and then good luck to another non-white fighter getting a shot for a long time and it was pushing 30 years at that point so just to put that in context 1908 Jack Johnson won the world heavyweight champion that was 40 years before Jackie Robinson and the level of vitriol and hatred that Jackie Robinson endured in 1947 as breaking, you know, breaking baseball's color barrier. Now think about a guy 40 years earlier than that and in an individual sport, you know, so not part of a team winning the title. This really was a jarring moment for most of white America. There was violence when he won the title in 08. Uh, violence um, violence in cities, race riots, that type of thing. So much so that the several, I think it was the United States government banned the showing or the shipping of fight films in the early 1900s. This was sort of before movies Fight films were a big form of entertainment in sort of the very early days of the motion picture industry. But because they were worried about the reaction to seeing Jack Johnson winning after the 1908 victory, which that was Tommy Burns that he defeated. Is that correct? December 26, 1908 in Sydney, Australia, he beat Tommy Burns, who was a Canadian. I also think it's worth noting, and this is only partially because of the racial aspect and also pos partially because a lot of local jurisdictions just considered boxing to be barbaric. You'll hear about a lot of these fights in this time period taking place outside of 
the United States. Uh, in fact, there, I was reading in preparation, there was a fight even in the earlier than that. John L. Sullivan had a fight where had he, he knew that if he beat his opponent bad enough and that the opponent was killed, that he would be arrested for murder because that was sort of the law of whatever state it was that he was fighting in. So you'll notice a theme here of a lot of these fights really throughout history for various reasons taking place in other parts of the country. So Johnson wins the title, which is is jarring enough. And not that he was under any obligation, but he certainly didn't do anything to ease... You know, he, he was more than happy to give the sort of shocked white populace a, you know, a reason to dislike him. He was a very flamboyant guy. He was outspoken. Um, he had dalliances with white women frequently. Um, and again, none of that. It's not. It wasn't his responsibility to adopt a certain persona but in a lot of times especially even decades later that's what we saw with a lot of these you know a lot of african-americans who broke barriers in sports and everywhere else where they were supposed to be quiet and reserved and not give their critics anything to latch on to and johnson did not buy into that so he wins the title from burns and he defends the title a couple of times uh, in philadelphia in pittsburgh and in san francisco uh, throughout 1908 and 1909, and oh, and then one in uh, Coma, California, which I'm not exactly sure where that is. And all along, there's you know there were varying cries of people looking for a great white hope, which really was going to be anybody who was able to beat Johnson and return the heavyweight title to the hands of a white fighter, but. Basically, as soon as he won the title, there was clamoring for Jim Jeffries, the former uh, boxer, the former champion, to come out of retirement and take the title back. And they were finally able to coax him into fighting and getting back into shape. He was offered $120,000 for for beating Johnson. That's $120,000 in 1910. I mean, that's astronomical money. So they fought uh, on July 4th, 1910 in Reno, Nevada, 22,000 people on hands again, 1910 basically being unheard of. And Johnson was able to defeat him uh, in the 15th round, which these fights back then were scheduled for 40, 50 rounds at times. So Johnson wins fairly handily. And that led to what they call the Johnson Jeffries riots based on the outcome of a boxing match. It said within two days, 10 people had been killed in six different states. And then they list the places that riots occurred. I'll just read some of them. Atlanta, Houston, Cincinnati, New York, St. Louis. And then, you know, they go through smaller cities, Columbus, Fort Worth, Kansas City, Dayton, like just all over the place. So you had major riots and lynchings and killings throughout the country, not just in the Deep South, throughout the country just because a black man was the heavyweight champion and was you know able to defeat what they saw as the great white hope. So as much as the main part of that story and what we would talk about if you could only talk about one aspect of this the much more compelling and historically significant angle to this is sort of the racism that was pervasive throughout the country at that time 
But it does also illustrate just how important the heavyweight title was in this country. Now, in this case, it was because it justified a lot of people's feelings about white supremacy and that Jack Johnson holding the belt flew in the face of that. But you had a you had race riots throughout the country based on the result of a heavyweight title match. People cared. That was the it meant something. I think that sort of speaks to what I was talking about before, is that it was a position in American society that meant something to people for better or worse in this case, but it, it meant something. And he then goes on, uh, defends his title a few more times, and then he faces Jess Willard in 1915 in another fight. And this one was in Havana, Cuba, another fight that was held abroad and loses the title in 26 rounds. <laughs> and there were always some questions about whether or not uh, Johnson may have thrown that fight unsubstantiated, most likely. But, um, Again, another another fight with Willard in 1915 where the eyes of the whole world were on the heavyweight title. Just to, to zoom forward a little bit and talk about, uh, you know, sort of the 20s and you think of the roaring 20s and the athlete who springs to mind, Babe Ruth. And anytime you really hear them talk about the rise of sort of sports in the 20s, Ruth is the first guy they mention. And then there's a Several other athletes that you hear them mention was it Bill Tilden in tennis and Babe Diedrichson, right, the golfer. But the second name they always list from that era behind Ruth is Jack Dempsey, uh, who was the heavyweight champion, sort of the fit into the American narrative slash mythology of the time as a guy who would who had been a hobo and you know escape that poverty to become not just a athlete but the heavyweight champion of the world he won the heavyweight title from jess willard in 1919 just before the roaring 20s started and then held the title throughout most of the 20s with a brief interruption where he lost to gene tunney uh and then won the title back or then excuse me lost the title to gene tunney in 26 and then subsequently lost another rematch to him in 27, but, you know, really just a, on the upper echelon of sort of cultural figures in the early 20s or throughout the 20s, you know, 85,000 people went to see him in 1923 against Burpo at the Polo Grounds, and this was at a time when, yeah, a lot of boxing, a lot of title fights were in baseball or football stadiums, but that didn't mean they were all filled. And these were legitimate sellouts. Just looking at some of the places he fought, going backwards, his last fight against Tunney was at Soldier Field. His last win before that was at Yankee Stadium. The first Tunney fight was at, a, um, I think, what became JFK Stadium in Philadelphia. The Polo Grounds, you know, Madison Square Garden. But, I mean, there, these were major, major outdoor arenas at a time when filling those up was a rare occasion. A cultural icon. You talked about Babe Ruth. Dempsey, it is believed, made more money in one fight than Babe Ruth made in his entire career. And that's Babe Ruth we're talking about. This isn't some guy who hit 320 for the Pirates for a few years and made a few all-star teams. Babe Ruth, the most well-known athlete probably in American history. 
starred in movies. Jack Dempsey uh, was a a figure that was known and sought after throughout the country. Uh, you know, you even look 50 years later uh, and he Dempsey lived a very long life. I believed he lived into the want to see when he, he, lived, he died in 1983. He lived to the age of 88 and opened a, a restaurant, Jack Dempsey's restaurant in New York city. One that's featured actually in the Godfather in the first Godfather movie. So it shows you just how much of an icon he was in the 1920s. And it's funny, you talk about the FERPO fight, which was held at the Polo Grounds. And in doing some research for this, I noticed sort of an interesting story. That fight was held at the Polo Grounds in 1924, I believe it was. And I'm sorry, 1923, September 14th, 1923. And that was Dempsey's last title defense. And it was a fight where he was knocked out of the ring by Louis Furpo before he came back to win the fight. When he was knocked out of the ring in this fight at the Polo Grounds, I just want to read you from a, a book called The Boxing Kings, When American Heavyweights Ruled the Ring by Paul Beston, and I'll put this in the show notes. So this is after Dempsey was knocked out of the ring by Furpo. The Polo Grounds was in delirium. The infield benches toppled over and men scuffled. Among them, Babe Ruth who nearly got into a fray with welterweight champion Mickey Walker. So I don't know why Babe Ruth in September of 1923 with a pennant race in yeah. full swing felt the need to try. What did you say? They had it wrapped up by September, I think. But I don't know that Babe Ruth needed to be f getting into a fist fight with the welterweight champion, whether their pennant race was still in doubt or not. But anyway, yeah, like Andrew said, I think the, the most important takeaway from Dempsey is when you hear him talked about, he is talked about in the same breath as Ruth, Red Grange, Bill Tilden, all of these other great icons. And it's it's kind of unfortunate that uh, that happened that night, the night Furpo knocked Dempsey out of the ring. Because... Oh, because wasn't that the night that uh, uh, that was the night that Mickey Goldmill was knocked right out of the ring by I don't even remember the name of who he said knocked him out of the ring. Yeah, I don't remember that either. But uh, that didn't get any coverage because it was the same night that Furpo knocked, knocked Dempsey out of the ring. But do you know why Dempsey got the coverage? Because he because he was champ. No, Rocky, because he had a manager. Rocky was probably right about that. To be honest. <laughs> The fact that the heavyweight champion got knocked out of the ring was because he had it was the champion got the car. Anyway, if, for people who don't know, we're referencing the famous scene from Rocky when Mickey convinces him to let him become his manager. But uh, he's showing him the clipping of the night he got knocked out of the ring. He got knocked out of the ring by Guinea Russell. I think it would have been Guinea Russo. Oh, Guinea Russo. All right, fine. Um, knocked him out of the I ring. I'm going to have to make the decision whether to cut that out or not. <laughs> Name <laughs> was. No, you're right. Anyway, okay. So let's let's get back to the the reality world of boxing. Um. So you know, after Dempsey, a few different champions. We're going to zoom ahead a little bit, and we're going to zoom ahead to Joe Lewis. Um, I mentioned before about how it was a long time after Jack Johnson before an African American was given the chance at a um 
was given a chance to challenge for the heavyweight championship again, and that was Joe Lewis. Um, you know, became the champion in. I'm trying to get the exact date. He won the heavyweight champion from James Braddock in 1937 at Comiskey Park in Chicago. Then defended the title. Excuse me, that's when he won the title. Lewis only had the title once. Okay, all right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Lewis became the champion had defeated James Braddock in 1937. And like I said, with, with uh, the Jack Johnson sort of model in mind, was never seen really smiling, let alone doing anything that would anger the white populace, so to speak. But even still, uh, you know, we're still a decade before Jackie Robinson, a black man winning the heavyweight championship, is still a monumentous thing. It's not a thing that everybody is thrilled with so to speak, uh, even though Dempsey was very careful, or excuse me, even though Lewis was very carefully managed to not go down the same route Jack Johnson did in terms of the way he um, conducted himself outside the ring. But a few years before, or really a year or so before, this was back when guys fought 10 times a year, so it was like still six or seven fights before he had won the title in June of 37, Lewis had lost in June of 36, almost a year exactly to the day before he won the championship from Braddock. Lewis had lost to another former heavyweight champion, Max Schmeling, from Germany. And they had lost to him in Yankee Stadium uh, on June 19th of 1936 in the 12th round of a 15-round fight. It was a very good fight. It wasn't for the title because Schmeling had been the champion for a few years at that point, and Lewis was still a year away from winning the championship. But Lewis very famously said after he won the title that he didn't consider himself the champion until he beat Schmeling. Now, there's some of that is marketing for a fight that they knew was going to be coming up, you know, but some of it was probably legit that he'd been beaten by this guy and they never had a rematch with him, and he felt like he needed to avenge his victory or his loss. So, Defends the title a few other times, and everything is set up for June 22nd, 1938, at Yankee Stadium, where the first fight had been two years prior. And this time, Lewis, even though Lewis is the champion, he's the one with something to prove uh, in to, you know, avenging his, his only loss to that point. Now, this is 1936, or 1938 at this point. We're talking about Max Schmeling, a German boxer who, let's be very clear, and I would like to do an episode on him at one point, or at least partly about him, Max Schmeling was not a Nazi. He was not a supporter of Adolf Hitler or the Third Reich, but he was a proud German. He continued to live in Germany, despite potentially being in danger at various points, and on occasions did have to grudgingly deal with being used in Nazi propaganda, especially when it comes in conjunction to beating a black fighter. And his efforts to resist it in 36, after he beat Lewis, you know, a lot of German propaganda was trying to spin him as, you know, basically what happened in that fight was in watching tape of previous Lewis fights, Max Schmeling noticed that right before Joe Lewis went to throw a jab. He lowered his fist uh, and was able to take advantage of that. 
which was actually, you know, very smart fighter. It wasn't like a ton of guys watched film because not much of it exist back, existed back then. Relatively new thing. But what that got spun into was Max Schmeling, German superhero, exposed a flaw in the genetics of the black fighter and was able to exploit that in a match. Um, so when we get two years later and Lewis is the champion and, you know, the German, uh, the Third Reich had continued, you know, another two years along the, the road. We were only a year or so away from the beginning of World War II in Europe. The fight became not just national news, but worldwide news. You had the German, you know, the Third Reich at Adolf Hitler proclaiming Schmeling as a, as a Nazi Superman, basically. And then on the other side, you had the American who... While we weren't at war with Germany yet, we certainly weren't allies with them, being propped up as sort of the American hope. And there's something also we can talk about, you know, the a little bit gross about the fact that he didn't, he wasn't seen as a full citizen in this country as a black man, but he was used as, you know, now he was suddenly the American champion when they were going against a, a, a foreign enemy. But I mean... I'll I'll give way to you here in a second, Dan, but, you know, this was a fight that, just for reference, over in Germany, there is a pretty strict, as any rule was there at the time, curfew for bars and nightclubs to be open was 3 o'clock in the morning. I was actually surprised it was that late. That was lifted that night so that people in Germany could go out in public and watch their German superhero win the title against this american champion and a black american and then lewis was obviously it was a the fight was a huge deal in america for the very same reasons just inverted yeah th there's a lot there obviously the paradox of how lewis was treated in his own country is something that bears a lot of discussion by the same token, he was a hero in the black community probably in a way that johnson had not been he was really, despite the way he and his fellow African-Americans were treated in their own country, he was probably the biggest American hero as a boxer to date. The only real, the only real competition was Dempsey, and Dempsey actually got some criticism. People thought he had dodged the draft in World War I. There were accusations of cheating. Putting to the extent that you can put the racial aspect of it aside, Lewis was beloved in this country and, you know, even goes to visit the White House. Not a lot of black men, period, let alone black athletes, had gone to the White House and met the president. And Roosevelt squeezes Joe Lewis's bicep and says, we need muscles like yours to beat the Germans. You have boxing as not just a national, but an international news story. I would also argue that this might be the first major media event in real time in American history. It definitely is in sports. I mean, if you think about sort of games or moments that are talked about as the entire nation was tuned in 
I can't really think of anything prior to the 1938 Lewis Schmeling fight. And I really can't think of anything after that, probably not until the 1951 NL playoff game where you talk about how, you know, everybody was just tuned in. And even that was New York baseball. So it was much more localized. You had the, the entire country and really in a lot of ways, the entire world, or at least much of Europe as well, tuned into this fight to see what would happen. Yeah. So yeah. It, it just speaks to what boxing was and was becoming at the time. And there's just, there's so many angles of it. There's the racial angle. There's the international angle. There's the media angle. There's the Yankee Stadium angle. I mean, they do have boxing occasionally at Yankee Stadium, but it's not like it was then where the entire stadium was filled with raucous fans. That I think would actually be another good episode for us to do would be to do an episode where we talked about great non-baseball moments at Yankee Stadium, but we can discuss that later. Before we move on, I think something else that's worth noting is that Lewis and Schmeling, despite their differences and despite the fact that they fought twice, stayed friends for throughout the rest of their lives into the 1980s. And Lewis fell on some financial troubles later in his life and Schmeling actually helped him out uh, with, with money in addition to them making joint appearances and that type of thing. So by the 1930s, I think you'd really seen the heavyweight title become the heavyweight title in these big black bold letters. Yep. And then, um, you know, just to, the fight itself was over before it even started. It was, you know, the, I mean, not technically, but close. The fight was over very quickly. Schmeling came out looking to do the same thing he'd done in the first. Lewis, they had planned to get the fight over quickly, and they did. They knocked Schmeling down, and then it, right when he got up, after a count of three, they knocked him down again. And the fight was over in the first round. Lewis uh, landed 31 of 41 punches, which was insane. He was only able to land two punches. Obviously, this set off much celebration throughout the U.S. Held to his feet, held to the rope, 
up to his corner in helplessness, and Schmeling is down. Schmeling is down. The count is four. And he's up, and Lewis, right and left to the head, a left to the jaw, a right to the head, and Donovan is watching carefully. Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left up to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five. Five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout. Max Schmeling is beaten in one round. You know, the flip side to that in Germany, and again, even though he was being used for disgusting reasons, Max Schmeling enjoyed a very brief period of being a national hero in his country and a symbol of national pride, and pretty quickly after losing the fight was not of any use to anybody. Lewis, you know, he wins the fight and goes on and and certainly had a lot of trouble later on, which could be several episodes in itself about the loyalty that Joe Lewis was rewarded with by the country that was ecstatic over him in the 30s, and especially when he beat Max Schmeling. Schmeling, like I referenced, suddenly wasn't the national hero and started to fall quickly out of disfavor with the German government, who already wasn't thrilled with things like him having a Jewish manager and refusing to go along with every one of their wishes for him from a propaganda standpoint. So it's, it's a much more complex story than we're going to do here, especially while we're setting the stage. But needless to say, this was now again a a heavyweight boxing match that became worldwide news and was essentially a proxy for, was an early proxy battle in a war we all knew was coming. People knew this collision course and when and who was going to be involved, who knew, but like, it was a very early sh- shot fired in a, in a war with two fighters who really didn't ask for that, for it to be that. But, um, you know, certainly just a, a huge monumentous occasion. What we'll do now is we're going to, we'll, we'll move forward just a little bit. And again, this isn't meant to be a comprehensive look at the history of the world heavyweight title. That would be 30 episodes, but we'll, we're going to kind of gloss over Rocky Marciano, who is an important figure as a boxer and undefeated and was certainly well known but just for the sake of brevity marciano won the title from lewis towards the end of lewis's career i have to correct you there never mind marciano beat lewis but didn't win the title from him exactly lewis lost or ezra charles ended up with the title and then jersey joe walcott and then marciano won it from him that's that's correct yeah all right you know, so then- and Lewis, Lewis was Marciano's her- hero growing up um, when Marciano was growing up. And so fighting him later was an interesting thing for both of them to have to go through. The thing I would say about Marciano is that he didn't really have that one big fight that you can point to. So while he's one of the best fighters of all time, he doesn't have one of the best, one of the greatest fights of all time, but definitely somebody who worth who's worth mentioning. And then I think you would probably next talk about Muhammad Ali. So what I was going to say, all these guys, by the way, are sanctioned by the uh, two sanctioning bodies, the NYSAC, the New York state athletic commission and the national boxing association. So sanctioning bodies have always existed. You know, they were the, the heavyweight championship that they had won was the NDA and the NYSAC were always pretty much in lockstep. So just just because that's going to become important a little while down the line. So after Marciano, you have Floyd Patterson, and he holds the title a couple of times. 
and then you have Sonny Liston, and that leads us into the really the last part of this I want to talk about, and there's certainly a number of fighters we're going to touch on, which is in 1964, Sonny uh, Liston lost the heavyweight championship to Cassius Clay, who would very shortly be renamed Muhammad Ali, and the golden age of heavyweight boxing from a cultural relevance standpoint began. Ali was really unlike anyone the boxing world has seen in a very, very long time, if ever, both in skill and flamboyance and activism, which a lot of the things he said and stood for were coming of age nationally at that time in the mid to late 60s, converting to the Nation of Islam, being outspoken about race in his in his interviews and, and things like that. And then just being at the, you know, Ali's a, a fascinating character, which I know is not a bold statement, but in terms of both his, you know, wanting, he did both things. You know, he, he riled people up by doing the speaking about race relations and late, what we're going to get to later on the Vietnam war and all of that. And like high minded political and, and sort of social issues. But then there was also the equally big part of him that was doing the bad guy wrestler thing and talking people into buildings by guaranteeing knockouts and making fun of his opponents and, you know, jousting with the media and things like that. And most of that part was just pure, like I say, showmanship, old time wrestling, knowing that people... The people who buy a ticket to see you get your butt kicked because they hate you are paying the same amount of money as the people who are buying a ticket to see you win because they love you. So he he played that aspect of it beautifully as well. Well, he said that his not his maybe not his hero, but his one of his major influences was Gorgeous George, who was uh, sort of the first great television wrestling star in the fifties. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about Ali is. He's really sort of the first heavyweight champion who is that you would describe as sort of articulate, well-spoken, you know, somebody who obviously was an intelligent man. And I, I don't say that to denigrate any of the previous ones, but Marciano hosted some TV later on. But guys like Lewis and Dempsey, these were quiet, soft-spoken men. And there's not usually much of a crossover between guys who are really good interviews and can write rhymes and poems on the spot and guys who make a living getting punched in the head and punching other people in the head. So he's a unique man in that respect, just to start off before you even get into any of the other stuff. And from a boxing point of view, it was sort of the perfect match of time, not just with the political aspect of it, but also with the technology, TV, and man and personality. Plus, the other thing that maybe doesn't get talked about enough is he had fights. He had the ability to f- have fights against some of the other really great boxers in boxing history. Joe Frazier, Sonny Liston, Floyd Patterson. uh Foreman. George Foreman. Larry Holmes later in his career. Joe Lewis, and it was no fault of Lewis's. There just wasn't the competition. Joe Lewis had what they called the bum of the month club, where he would basically fight another bum every couple of months just because there was nobody out there to fight. 
Ali benefits from that too. Exactly. And that's, you know, sort of dovetails into, into what I was going to continue on with this era, which is, you know, Ali's the champion and then is stripped of the title, loses his boxing license because he's, you know, refuses service in Vietnam. And you start to, this is by the way, where some of the sanctioning bodies are additionally starting to pop up. Um, now you have the NBA has become the WBA. You see the WBC, which is a new organization. And after Ali stripped of the title, very briefly, there's a split in the heavyweight title, but almost immediately Joe Frazier reunifies it. So now coming onto the stage while all this time, while uh, Ali's suspended from boxing, you see a new champion, a Joe Frazier, who, you know, an African-American, but is not seen as sort of a revolutionary, but he's an excellent boxer, specifically his left hook. You know, he wasn't the figure Ali was, but he was still a very prominent person. Like you said, everybody knew who the heavyweight champion was. Everybody knew what Joe Frazier looked like and that sort of thing. And all along, we're sort of building to Joe Frazier versus Muhammad Ali, if Muhammad Ali can get reinstated. When that finally happens in March of 1970, or when that finally happens, it builds towards March of 1971, which is Ali Frazier one the fight of the century at Madison Square Garden. And I mean, this was, I don't even know how to compare it to any other event because it wasn't like a Super Bowl. It wasn't like Oscars. It was, but it was that big of an event on top of the sporting event as well. Didn't Frank Sinatra photograph it for Life Magazine I believe or something like that? Lancaster was the right. stage, um, like was the locker room interviewer before the fight. Burt Lancaster was the locker room interviewer, and I'm just looking it up on Verified that Frank Sinatra shot the Frazier versus Ali fight for Life Magazine. Yeah, so this was this was the ultimate sort of celebrity event. The Apollo uh, 14 astronauts were at this fight. Colonel Sanders was at this fight <laughs> as well as all sorts of well, political you say Kentucky Colonel Sanders and Muhammad Ali are probably the two most famous people from Kentucky is Nate Lincoln from Kentucky I mean I consider him from Illinois but I fair I, enough no so I yeah it was just it was the ultimate cultural event in a way that's hard to replicate. The other thing that I would mention uh and you know Ali and Fraser for that matter are people that we can talk about for hours. It's worth noting that all of these guys are American and they're also all black which is its own cultural moment in and of itself, but even putting that part of it to the side, these are all Americans. And you had seven or eight really, really good American fighters. And that's probably a big reason why you would consider this the golden age, is that this was a time when there were so many American fighters who were so great and so relevant. The thing that's interesting to me about Ali, and I think sort of noteworthy for him, is that he starts his career in the mid-60s, early to mid-60s, ends it in the early 80s. And if we ever do an episode just about Ali, we can talk about his, his actual in-ring career and some of the decisions he made late in his career. 
but he's really more than anybody, probably a good metaphor for the decline in boxing over the latter part of the 20th century. He starts off in the golden age, really helps bring about that golden age in a lot of ways. And he starts fighting in the, the black and white TV era moves on to the, you know, these big fights at places like Madison square garden and Yankee stadium and all of those things. And then sort of ends it doing business with Don King fighting on HBO at places like the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland, or Caesar's Palace in uh, in Nevada. So by the time the early 80s roll around, it's a much different boxing universe. And I'd imagine that that's a lot of what we're going to get into in the next episode. Yeah, so we're just going to kind of wrap up this part of the episode with, you know, so also just to set the stage, fights are primarily, they're on a lot of networks. They're on ABC. You know, if having boxing was almost like having football or any sport, but I kind of think of it with football, with having different, you know, sort of packages and things like that. ABC is the network everybody thinks of around this time, you know, having a lot of these fights. But this is also the era of, you know, the third Ali Frazier fight, the thrill in Manila is in. Manila in the Philippines. When Ali fights Foreman, it's in Zaire. I, there's a, I want to say, that, you know, there were fights in the Bahamas. So not only was boxing such a huge thing in America, becoming a huge TV property, or I guess it already been a huge TV property, but it was also a huge thing now, you know, and this was the rise of promoters like Don King of hey, we can bring these fights to other countries and they will do big business just in terms of us getting paid to host these fights in all of these places too. So it, things just continue to grow where they're now doing them in outside stadiums that aren't even in this country and still able to pack thousands and thousands of people and bring in millions and millions of dollars through the governments in a lot of cases to put these fights on in these areas. So, you know, you had... The Ali Frazier trilogy, which one in three from a cultural standpoint are, are hard to beat. You had Ali in in uh, against Foreman in the that's the famous rope dope fight where people who don't even know where that phrase comes from, they know what rope dope is. You know, they and even if they don't know what it is, they know the phrase. Um, then you also had guys like Ken Norton and guys like later on Larry Holmes who were none of them were Ali in terms of cultural oh that's right but just to go back by the way the, the foreman Frazier fight was in Kingston Jamaica you know none of them were Ali in terms of pervasiveness in the culture but they were still all huge names and even as late as Holmes people saw the there was a direct link from him back to Ali and then back to guys like Marciano and Lewis it was a direct line and this was probably the richest heavyweight division had ever been in terms of huge stars, most of whom held the title at one point, and fights that to this day, just from a relevant standpoint, people remember. So that's where we'll leave it at the end of this episode. And when we pick it up in a week, we will talk about sort of our lifetime starting in the early to mid 80s and what the heavyweight championship has 
represented and become in the 21st century. So we hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope you will all enjoy when we pick up the story next week. So until then, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. Hi, everybody. Thank you for sticking with us here. This is a little bit of bonus content here on Hello Old Sports. As you may recall, when we did episodes number two and number three, we picked the 30-player all-time teams for first the New York Yankees and then for the three National League teams that have called New York City home in the 20th and 21st centuries, those being the Brooklyn Dodgers and New York Giants up until 1957, and then the New York Mets from 1962 until the present day. And what I said I was going to do was plug those 30-man teams into a simulation game, a simulation engine, Out of the Park Baseball 21, known to a lot of people as OOTP, and then just set up a nice little seven-game best-of-seven series to see which team came out on top. And so I did that, and I have the results. Andrew does not know the results yet, so he will be learning about them along with all of you. Andrew, are you ready? Yeah, before we do it, I'm just going to make a prediction. I'm going to say the Yankee team wins in six games. That's my prediction before I know anything. You're going to say the Yankee team wins in six games, and uh, I think that's a good prediction. I will just give you all a little bit of an idea of what I did. I went through and I found the highest war season for each of the 60 players that were selected. I then imported that player from that season into OOTP. I set a four-man pitching rotation for each team because that is what a team usually uses in a best-of-seven game series. And then I rejiggered the bullpens to set up the appropriate roles, closer, setup, long relief, sort of how I thought would be the best way to do it, given who the players on the roster were. I used the starting players that Andrew and I selected when we did episodes two and three, and then I set the batting orders myself again based on sort of what I thought would be the correct batting orders for each of the teams. Now, a couple notes. First of all, no DH. That is not so much a purist thing, even though I do consider myself a bit of a purist, but I wanted to, number one, mirror the circumstances that most of these players played under. And you figure every National League player and every American League player on the Yankees prior to 1970, which frankly is most of them on this roster, played without a DH. And also that would give us the opportunity to have a lot more pinch hitters and that type of thing. So that was what I did. I'm not going to run down the entire rosters, but let me just sort of run down the starting lineups for each team for the National League. And this did not change. I set the engine so that if a player was tired, he would be replaced in the starting lineup, but no one was tired. So no bench players started, although quite a few of them did end up getting in the game as pinch hitters, defensive replacements, that type of thing. So for the New York National League team, we have leading off, we have Jackie Robinson at second base. Batting second, we have Zach Wheat, a great Brooklyn Dodger of the 19-teens and 20s, bat in left field. 
batting third, Mel Ott in right field, Willie Mays batting cleanup and a fellow New York giant, three New York giants in a row here in the lineup. Batting fifth is the first baseman, Bill Terry. The catcher is Roy Campanella. He bats sixth. David Wright at third base and Pee Wee Reese at shortstop. For the Yankees, uh, Derek Jeter leads off at shortstop. Mickey Mantle in left field. Babe Ruth, number three in his traditional number three spot, bats third and plays right field. Lou Gehrig batting cleanup and playing first base, much as he did during his career. Batting fifth, we have A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. Batting sixth is the catcher, Yogi Berra. Joe DiMaggio is batting seventh and is in center field. And number eight hitter is the second baseman, Tony Pushemup Lazari. So those are the lineups. Now I have one question because you said you picked the highest war for each player, uh, the mm-hmm. war season. Did you, so for like Willie Mays, was that a San Francisco Giants year or did you make it the highest war for that would qualify for being a New York team? Excellent, excellent question. And that was uh, just the highest war for a New York season. That's a good question. And I should have mentioned that, but wanting to stay true to the New York theme, it was just in New York with a New York team. So Willie Mays years in San Francisco don't count and A-Rod's time on the Mariners or Rangers don't count just for uh, two, two quick examples. Okay. So are you, uh, are you ready to go? We're going to do game one right now, right? Game one and the starting pitchers. Christy Mathewson for the New York National League team, Whitey Ford for the Yankees. And we have a final score of 11 to 4 in favor of the New York National League team. The New York National League team scores one run in the first, the top of the first inning, and the New York Yankees score two runs in the bottom of the first inning on a two-run home run by Mickey Mantle off of Christy Mathewson. But from there on out, it is pretty much all National League. A final score of 11-4. to Winning pitcher Christy Mathewson, six and two-thirds innings, five hits, four earned runs. Three walks does give up three home runs to Yogi Berra, Mickey Mantle, and Lou Gehrig, but nonetheless comes away with the win. Whitey Ford lasts only three and two thirds innings, gives up seven hits and five earned runs. Jack Chesbrough actually comes in in relief of Ford and goes three and a third innings, giving up only one hit, but then the back end of the Yankee bullpen. Goose Gossage and Allie Reynolds gives up an additional six runs in the last two innings. Player of the game in this game, as selected by OOTP, is the leadoff hitter for the New York national team, and that is Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson, five plate appearances, four hits, and gets on base after having been hit by a pitch. Robinson with two doubles, a home run, and a single and adds in a stolen base for good measure. And the final score of game number one, Yankees four, New York National League 11. All right. So uh, obviously a a big win in the first game for the Nationals, uh, the National League team. What was the uh, pitching matchup for the second game? We have Carl Hubble 
great left-handed pitcher for the New York National League team against Red Ruffing, a contemporary of Hubble, who actually faced him a few times in the World Series, right-hander of the Yankees in the late 30s and early 40s. I should note that the first two games are being played at the old Yankee Stadium. And when I say the old Yankee Stadium, I mean the pre-renovation, pre-1973 Yankee Stadium. I realize you probably should have done Hilltop Park, Yankee Stadium 1, then then Yankee Stadium 2 and 3 for game 6 and 7. Yeah, you know, that probably wouldn't have been a bad idea, especially because Chesbro did play. So we do. It's not like we don't have any represented representation there. And then I guess we also don't have City Field. But you're right. It probably couldn't have hurt to at least try and get all three Yankee stadiums in there. But uh, twas not meant to be, unfortunately. Game two, again, at the old Yankee Stadium. And we have another victory for the New York National League team. Both teams with 11 hits and one error, but a final score of eight runs to three in favor of the New York National League team. Wow. So they've, uh, they've really, in this, uh, they've, they've scored, what, 19 runs in the first two games? They have scored 19 runs to the Yankees' seven in the first two games. Some of the uh, offensive highlights in this one. Uh, strangely enough, the... Selected player of the game is Mickey Mantle, who has three hits in five at-bats, and that includes a home run and a double, as well as a single, and two RBIs for Mantle. So he is selected as the player of the game. Winning pitcher Hubble, five and two-thirds innings. Losing pitcher Ruffing, five and a third's inning. Allie Reynolds comes in again in relief and once again gets smacked, gives up four hits and two earned runs in one and a third inning. By this point, Reynolds has a 16.88 ERA for the series, and Goose Gossage has a whopping 20.25 ERA for the first two games of the series. Nobody in particular stands out for the National League team. One home run in the game for the Nationals uh, for by Willie Mays. Several doubles, Campanella, Terry, and Wheat with two doubles, so four doubles in the game. At this point, Bill Terry is hitting 571 for the series. Willie Mays and Jackie Robinson both hitting 444. And the Yankees' best hitter to this point has definitely been Mantle with a 571 average and the only other one on over 400. In fact, the only other one over 300 at this point is DiMaggio with a 429 batting average all right so now we're we're the series is shifting and where was game three ebbets field game three will be held if you'll just excuse me for a moment here while i pull this up game three was held at ebbets field that is correct we are at ebbets field for game number three starting pitchers Tom Seaver for the New York national team. Lefty Gomez for the Yankees. Hmm. Right off the bat, it would seem like, I mean, I can't imagine the national league goes up three to nothing. So, you know, I, I feel like the Yankees have to win this game. You would be incorrect. 
five to one for the New York National League team. Only only a one hit difference. So what we're really seeing in a lot of these games is even on the hits, but the National League team able to sort of shut the door when there were threats and the Yankees not able to capitalize. Gomez gets the loss, four innings, six hits, four earned runs. So doesn't pitch terribly, but doesn't do enough to have his team win. Gidry, uh, three innings of runless and hitless ball in relief, Ron Gidry, but his team is not able to make use of those three innings and still manages to lose five to one. Seaver gets the win, seven and a third innings, five hits, only the one run. And we have our first save of the series, and that is John Franco, who goes one and two thirds innings of two hit ball to get the save for the New York National League team. Home runs for the National League by Campanella, Jackie Robinson, and two home runs for Mel Ott, including one in the first inning off of Gomez, which put his team ahead in a lead that they never relinquished. Another home run for Mickey Mantle for the Yankees. He has a home run in every game to this point of the series and is batting 500. Something that is probably worth noting is that Babe Ruth to this point is hitting 0.083 and Lou Gehrig is hitting 154. I was just about to say, wow, I haven't really heard anything about Babe Ruth yet. So obviously struggling in the series. We move on to the polo grounds for game four. Pitching matchup of Dwight Gooden. And it was a really a hard decision for me between Gooden and... Jacob deGrom, but I went with Gooden because I think that Gooden probably was a more dominant starter for at least a couple of years. And his opponent is Wait Hoyt, the uh, Hall of Fame Yankee pitcher of the 20s and 30s. As mentioned, we are at the Polo Grounds. The National League scores six runs off of Hoyt in the first inning. Puts themselves ahead in a game to take the lead, a lead that will they will never relinquish. They win by a score of six to two to sweep the all-time New York World Series. Wow. You know, I mean I guess it's the pitching. I mean, we knew the starting pitching is better for the National League team than the than the Yankees. I, I guess I mean obviously it surprises me. Not that it's the definitive be-all and end-all, but um, yeah, I mean, the fact that it was all four games, none of which were uh, particularly close, honestly. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a certainly a definitive answer there that the National League team won. I mean, what was the most runs the American League team scored in a game? Four? In the first game they had four. Here's something funny. They went from four to three to one to two, so they... They almost went steadily down in every single game, and they really didn't lead after the first inning of the first game. Wow. So, yeah. So just to sort of run through here, Gooden gets the win, six and a third innings. Only one hit given up by Gooden in his six and a third. And then Jacob deGrom and Joe McGinnity close out the game. Losing pitcher is Hoyt, who gives up. Five hits, six runs, only three of them earned in his 
two and two thirds innings. Johnny Murphy, Andy Pettit, and Jack Chesbro all pitch very well in relief, but the offense of the Yankees not able to capitalize. Gooden is selected the player of the game for his dominant pitching performance. Home runs, uh, Mays and Zach Wheat for the National League, and Yogi Berra hits his second home run of the series for the Yankees. So just really a dominant performance from beginning to end for the New York National League squad. I guess it's hard to argue with. The the, uh, simulation definitely had an opinion about which team was better over a seven-game series, four games, all of which varying degrees of one-sided. So uh, certainly no ambiguity there. And obviously this is a simulation, and my guess is we could run this three or four more times and get three or four very different results. So, as you said, not exactly definitive. The only other thing I think that we need to do real quick is to select an MVP, and obviously you don't have the stats in front of you, but I think that it's safe to say that it should probably be a position player given that no one pitcher had the chance to pitch more than one no game starter. Yeah, you're right. And it was, none of them were close. So it's not like it was a uh, guy made guy had three multi-inning saves or anything like that. So it probably would have to be somebody in the, in the everyday lineup for the NL team. And I am going to select Willie Mays. Three players for the national league had two home runs in the series. And those are Mays, Jackie Robinson and Mel Ott. I am going to say Mays because he hit 412, slugged 882, had five RBIs, which was tied for the lead in RBIs on the team with Zach Wheat. He stole a base. Nobody stole more than one base, but he, Robinson, and ironically, strangely enough, David Wright all stole a base. So I think that I am going to award Willie Mays the most valuable player award of this series. And that is very fitting because Willie Mays is the namesake of the real life MVP award in Major League Baseball. So I think it, it fits well. Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly uh, hitting over 400 in, in four games would uh, would probably win it in real life as well. Not a lot of standouts for the American League, although... Mantle, three home runs, five RBIs, and a slugging percentage of 1.154. Definitely the one of the lone bright spots for the all-time Yankee team in this fictitious series between the all-time New York Yankees and the all-time New York National League team. So thank you all for joining us. Hope you enjoyed tonight's main episode as well as this little follow-on edition at the end. I'm Dan Newman. I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month 
for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcasts. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcasts. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.